Our second lesson today comes from the letter to the Hebrews. We'll be reading uh, from chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, and I'll be reading from the Common English Bible, but you can follow along uh, in your Pew Bible on page 205 of the New Testament section. It was appropriate for God, for whom and through whom everything exists, to use experiences of suffering to make perfect the pioneer of salvation. This salvation belongs to many sons and daughters whom he's leading to glory. This is because the one who makes people holy and the people who are being made holy all come from one source. This is why Jesus isn't ashamed to call them brothers and sisters when he says, I will publicly announce your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the middle of the assembly. He also says, I will reply on, rely on him. And also, here I am with the children whom God has given to me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he also shared the same things in the same way. He did this to destroy the one who holds the power over death, the devil, by dying. He set free those who were held in slavery their entire lives by fear of death. Of course, he isn't trying to help angels, but rather he's helping Abraham's descendants. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. This was so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God, in order to wipe away the sins of the people. He's able to help those who are being tempted, since he himself experienced suffering when he was tempted. The word of God for the people of God. So here we are, the weekend after Christmas. We might still be riding a holiday high. I've still got Christmas music going in my car. Maybe you're enjoying some time off. We're still singing joyful Christmas songs, like Ding Dong Merrily on High. It was beautiful. And then our lectionary brings us these two passages. So far in our scripture today, we've covered the mass murder of innocent children, the mourning of an entire nation of believers, the suffering of Christ, and death. Amanda, they said. You should preach on the 29th, they said. It'll be great, they said. Right. So, let's dive in, shall we? In all seriousness, these passages are theologically dense. And it's important to dig deeper to really see what these scriptures are saying about the human condition in their own context. We started off with our narrative in Matthew. The Magi have just departed from the Holy Family, and we're in the middle of a dramatic back and forth between King Herod, the Magi, and God's messengers. The Magi, who were non-Jewish astrologers, have already, and likely unknowingly, caused King Herod to spiral into a rage-filled, power-hungry frenzy. We know historically that Herod was consumed with maintaining his power in the Roman Empire by any means necessary, 
and acts of violence are not excluded in that. So when these foreign astrologer priest types show up and ask the king where the new king is, it's a big deal. We know from other ancient texts that magi are generally characters that disrupt power structures, and they also generally predict the fall of kings. So you can imagine that Herod was not going to have a new little prophesied king running around on his watch. Herod had originally hoped that the Magi would find the child and then return and report back about where he could find the child himself. But God's messenger stepped in and had other plans. So after the Magi were warned in a dream, they did not go and report back to Herod. Our passage states that when Herod found out that the Magi had fooled him, according to the CEB, he was very angry. And I have a feeling that very angry is an understatement. You see, Herod is, Herod is not just driven by anger, he's driven by fear. When faced with losing his power, fear drives Herod to a horrific and violent means of maintaining that power. If he can't find this newborn king, he'll just kill all of the children that are the same age as the child in Bethlehem and maybe even a few towns around that. In this report of genocide, the reader of Matthew should be reminded of another similar story from the book of Exodus. Remember the saga of Moses when the Israelites were growing in number and Pharaoh felt that his power was threatened? Herod's command that the children in Bethlehem should be killed is meant to be an echo of Pharaoh's decree to kill the Israelites' young children in Egypt. The reader is also reminded that all of this points to a fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah's message that there would be weeping and grieving among the people. We are reminded that Rachel, a matriarch of Israel, is inconsolable because of the fate of her children and descendants. So here we have a political power struggle, murder, and weeping. And meanwhile, Joseph is navigating how to handle it all. We find God helping Joseph to do just that. Joseph already has the track record of being a dreamer, much like his Old Testament predecessor of the same name. He's already been told about the Christ child by God through a dream. And now God's messenger warns Joseph of Herod's plan through another dream. Facing violence and persecution, Joseph packs up his family and flees to Egypt in search of a safe place to live and work. Even after Herod dies, Joseph's homeland wasn't safe because Herod's son was still in power and was probably even more violent than his father. It's not a stretch to see how the narrative in Matthew reflects many of the evils in the world that we witness today. Like Herod, there are world leaders and groups using violence, persecution, and fear to maintain their hold on power. Like Joseph and the Holy Family, there are people fleeing their hometowns and countries to seek safety. Like the Magi, there are people searching for answers. So far, this might not be the message of hope 
you would expect to hear during the Christmas season. Many of you may have seen a post on Facebook in the last several weeks. It was a picture of a nativity scene where the Holy Family had been separated into individual cages. It was arranged by a United Methodist Church in California to raise awareness on immigration issues. The post was polarizing for reasons I likely don't need to elaborate on today, but I, do, I will say that I was personally intrigued and moved by the post and the engagement that it received. So I decided to ask one of my acquaintances what they thought about this picture, and I have to admit, I knew that we were going to have different feelings on it. I promise I wasn't looking for a debate, but I was truly curious about what his take was. And his answer was not what I had expected. He simply said that Christmas is a season of joy and love, and it, that it isn't the time to be focused on these more negative issues. And I sat with that for a while. Because on one hand, I wholeheartedly agree that the focus of Christmas, the message of Christmas, is rooted in love. It's a story about Jesus Christ, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, love incarnate. On the other hand, though, I also recognize that a lack of love and joy persists in many places, even and especially during the Christmas season. We cannot deny that evil, the evil that existed within the biblical narrative and the evil today is a present and harsh reality here and now. So how do we balance that tension? How do we embrace and prioritize the love of God while also admitting to the evil that we allow to persist in the world? I think that one of our best answers comes from our lesson in Hebrews. We find assurance of human empathy, the human empathy of Christ, and in turn, the capacity that we have to empathize with our fellow humans. Hebrews tells us that experiences of suffering are part of who Christ is and why he fulfills the role of Savior. Not only did Jesus suffer and die on the cross, Jesus was born into persecution and poverty. His suffering continued into his ministry as he was tempted, as he makes himself vulnerable in relationships, and as he chooses to minister to the least and to the poor. God, the almighty creator, could have chosen to break into our world in any form, in any time, and here we are. We can choose to overlook or deny the harsher details of the Christmas narrative, or I think we can shift our perspective and actually take comfort and joy in the fact that Jesus didn't skip over the harsh or nitty-gritty parts of being human. To push aside the harsh realities of human life would be to overlook our reality and an integral piece of the story of Emmanuel, God with us. For me, the joy of Christmas rests in the humanness of Jesus. We are connected to Christ because Christ knows what it's like to be human, to be poor, 
to be angry, to be rejected, to be brokenhearted. These are not things that we aspire to, but these are realities. And instead of pushing these aside, let us rejoice that God is in this beautiful mess with us. Jesus says, here I am with the children whom God has given me. I am human. You are human. If we experience it, Jesus experienced it. Because of this, Christ empathizes with us. Christ vouches for us. That is who our Savior is. A Savior who isn't afraid to see our human nature, take our human nature, and love us anyway. Life is filled with fragmentation and brokenness, but the salvation that Christ offers is unity. Unity with God and unity with others. And that's what we have to remember today. Bonhoeffer, a theologian in Germany during World War II, recognized that salvation is properly understood in community. When individuals gather together to work out their faith with love and with responsibility toward others. Now he saw firsthand contemporary genocide and recognized the need to stay connected with love in community. If not, we run the risk of turning the other way when our fellow humans are being treated as less than human. Brene Brown reminds us in her book, Braving the Wilderness, that during every genocide recorded throughout history, dehumanization is the primary instrument of violence that has been used. Because genocide doesn't start with detainment or concentration camps. It starts with indifference. Indifference is worsened by fear that we might lose something we've come to value and all of this results in turning away from our fellow humans. But there is hope. It's a Christmas hope and a Christmas joy. I am human. You are human. We are human together. We know that we are human when we read the Christmas narrative. We read about Herod's killing of the innocent children, but the point of that story is not that the act of horror happened. The point of the story is to know that despair and to know what comes after. What comes after is hope. Hope that things will get better. When fear drives us to lose sight of the humanity in others, God still speaks. When evil threatens to crush us, God offers us another way. When we weep, God reminds us that God is with us and a new day is coming. We have hope because Jesus is in this with us. And even when we consider the finality of death, the ultimate end, we are reminded that we need not fear that either because Jesus died too, and yet Jesus conquered death. That is our hope. That is our joy.
And with that hope and joy, we can rejoice. And we can rejoice with our fellow humans, free from fear, free from boundaries that separate us, and free to love unconditionally as God loves us unconditionally. The one who makes people holy and the people who are being made holy all come from one source, God our creator. We are in this together with Christ. I am human. You are human. We are human. Praise be to God. Amen.